uniform this morning in honor of all of those men and women who have given so much uh, for us so that we can actually be here and worship God in peace and in freedom. <clears throat> for those of you that are under the age of 30, I would uh, highly recommend that you consider perhaps looking into the military as a way of serving your country. Um, there are all different kinds of things you can do. One of them is to be a chaplain like I was. And it's a wonderful opportunity to minister to the needs of our men and women in uniform. I've often thought that we should probably have a memorial day for um, the saints of our church and the church who have given their lives in service of Christ. Um, we have people all over the world, even right now, who are giving their lives for Jesus. And um, we do have All Saints Day in October, but we often kind of overlook that. But it um, might be something to consider. A young mother was talking about her seven-year-old son who balked about going to church one Sunday morning. And the boy said, well, daddy doesn't go to church. And the mother said, well, when your father was your age, he used to go to church every Sunday. And the boy looked over at his dad and he asked, is that true? And the father nodded, yes, that it was. And the boy said, oh, all right. I guess I'll go, but it probably won't do me any good either. <laughs> yeah. I think it's unfortunate that um, many times we can go to church Sunday after Sunday and people who know us, maybe people in our family, our friends, whatever, co-workers, might say the same thing about us. They wonder what good it does us, that we're really not that much different than other people around us. It doesn't really seem to make much difference in terms of how we relate to one another. In fact, we may be some of the most mean and nasty people that they know. We may know our Bible well, we may have our doctrine lined up and have our theology straight, but for some reason, it's just not translating into how we live that out in our lives. This morning, we're coming to a passage of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4 which really begins a whole new section of his letter. Chapters 1 through 3 are, is the place where Paul basically lines out and, and lays out the, the doctrine, the theology that's so critical to our lives. Doctrinal issues such as the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he goes on to apply that thinking to everyday living. 
You know, theology is nothing more than Christian thinking about God. It was never meant to be strictly an academic exercise that kind of, you know, just satisfies our curiosities or amuses our minds. Christian thinking and Christian teaching about God has always been about the proper ordering of our lives or reordering of our lives. It has to do with how we live and how we relate to other people. I think there are too many people like that father of the little boy who didn't want to go to church. We go, we learn things, we think, isn't that interesting? That's an interesting point that the preacher made. Hopefully you think that every once in a while. But then we just walk out the door and we don't apply it. It doesn't go anywhere. But if God is personal, if God is infinite, if God is righteous and holy, if God is love, if God became a man and died on a cross and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father, if those things are true, they should make a huge impact on how we live our lives. That's the point. If we have been saved by grace through faith, if we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God, if we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, if we have been marked and sealed by the Holy Spirit, if we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, Paul now urges us to live our lives worthy of that high calling. Let's take a look at this passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes, as a prisoner for the Lord then, notice he says a prisoner of the Lord. He's in jail when he's writing this. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So verse 1, he says, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Notice he doesn't say, I urge you to believe worthy. He says, I urge you to walk 
worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk the walk and don't just talk the talk, in other words, as we sometimes say. Don't just think about these things, although it's important to think about them. Don't just think about them. Do them. Live them out. Make them a part of your life. I was reading an article in Christianity Today about what are the things that attract Muslims to Christianity. Why do some Muslims actually convert to Christianity? Why do you think? Do you think it's because of our doctrine? Do you think it's because of our theology? Do you think it's because of our teaching? Nope. They received 750 completed questionnaires back from Muslims who had converted to Christianity. And the profile that's painted there gives us some glimpses into the things, the means by which the Holy Spirit is actually working in the lives of Muslims. And the number one thing, the number one experience that people listed as to what it was that opened their eyes to the truth of Jesus Christ, Muslims now, was the lifestyle of the Christians that they encountered. Wow. A former Sufi mystic in North Africa noted that he saw no gap between the moral professions of Christians and what they actually did in their lives. The practices of Christians. An Egyptian contrasted the love that he found among Christian students at an American university in Medina with how he was treated by other Muslims and by Muslim faculty. An Omani woman said that she noted that Christians treat women as equals. A Moroccan was welcomed by his Christian in-laws after a difficult divorce with their daughter. And many others noted the Christian marriages that they observed. Now, if the practical outworking of our faith had such a huge impact on these former Muslims. Can you imagine what impact it would have on our friends and neighbors and family here in Fairfield County? If we really walked the walk and didn't just talk the talk. You know, most of us here grew up in a time when the question, is it true, was a meaningful and an important question. Today, 
The concept of truth, and by that I mean objective truth, has been undermined to a large degree by the idea that all truth is subjective. It's relative. That what's true for you may not be true for me. The question that people ask today about religion is not, is it true? But does it work? And not only that, but does it work for me? And I have to tell you, I just kind of cringe at that change in attitude because it's so contrary to my own spiritual journey where the question, is it true, was the only important question. In fact, it still is for me the only important question when it comes to religious matters. But times have changed. And I guess I have to change a little bit with that. People are rarely moved by religious discourse. Rational understandings about religious truth. But you know, as I've been thinking about it, the question, does it work, is really just another way of coming at it. Because if it's true, in other words, if it's a description of reality, then it should work. For example, airplanes fly because they're built according to fixed principles that govern our world. They work because they're based on the truth that governs our physical universe. And so, because Christianity is true, I believe that it works. It brings us the kind of life that Jesus came to bring us. But it only works if it's put into practice. In other words, it only works if we build our lives around the design that Jesus gave us. God does his part when he calls us to our high calling in Christ and then gives us his Holy Spirit. But we are then expected to respond by walking worthy of that call. And so we want to look at what does that call, what does that entail, and then we're going to look at how do we actually do it. Okay? So Paul goes on to explain here in Ephesians exactly what it means to walk worthy of the call. What are the characteristics that we need to develop in order to walk worthy of this high calling? And the first characteristic or virtue that he mentions is that we have to be humble. It's humility that allows us to serve in ways that are self-sacrificial without any thought of recognition, without any thought even of appreciation. You know, before Jesus came, humility was not a virtue. 
That was not something that the ancient world thought you should try to develop. In fact, it was just the opposite. But because we follow in Jesus' footsteps, who of course humbled himself to become one of us, humility has become part of what it means to be a Christian. It's an integral part of Christian character. To be humble, we have to renounce self-centeredness. But self-centeredness is our default setting. Ask any parent of a two-year-old child. You don't have to teach a two-year-old child how to be self-centered. The first words are usually no and mine. So we have to see that for what it is. It's really the essence of sin. Where we continue to promote ourselves, promote our own wants and our desires above other people. But Jesus tells us we have to renounce self-centeredness. We have to renounce self-seeking. In fact, he talks about this in terms of dying, right? He says, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. We have to remove ourselves from the center of the universe and put God there instead. Now, that doesn't mean we're not still important, okay? We are still important. We're made in God's image. Jesus died for us. We are sons and daughters of God. But all of this is a gift. It's nothing that we've done, nothing that we've earned, so we can't boast about that. Humility is not based on the idea that we are inferior to other people. It's based on the idea that because God values us, we don't have to prove anything to anyone. We don't have to try to lift ourselves up. We don't have to prove that we have value. Yeah, think about how much time we spend doing just the opposite. Trying to prove our value. But as a child of God, as a son, as a daughter of God, we cannot go any higher than we already are. We are already seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verse 6. We're already there. And it's not just knowing this in our heads, but it's believing it in our hearts that leads to the next virtue or characteristic that Paul mentions here, and that has to do with gentleness. To develop gentleness, 
we have to renounce the idea of harshness, strength, and manipulation to get our way. Healthy relationships do not use force or intimidation. It's unfortunate that many people who profess to be followers of Jesus present with so much anger and hostility that no one wants to even be around them. Contrast that with Jesus. And look how the people were drawn to him. Not only the outcasts of society, but even the little children were drawn to him because they could see that characteristic in him. And that quality of gentleness, which really involves sensitivity to the feelings of people around us, is closely related to the next virtue or characteristic that's involved in walking worthy of the Lord, and that's patience. That's right, patience. Something that we don't see very much of in our hectic, everyday world. There was a young father in a supermarket who was pushing a loaded cart down the aisles, and he had his little son strapped in the front. This little boy was fussing and crying and irritable, and as he was going down the aisle, he was pulling things off the shelves and throwing them on the floor, and you know, the other shoppers were giving him a wide berth because they didn't want to get it too close to them, you know? And as the father was going down the, the aisle, he could be overheard saying, Easy now, Donald. Keep calm. Steady boy, Donald. It's all right, Donald. You'll be okay. And a mother who was passing by overheard this, and she was really impressed by this father's solicitous attitude toward her, his little boy. And she said to him, You certainly know how to talk to an upset child gently and quietly. And then bending down to the little boy, she said, What seems to be the trouble, Donald? Oh, no, said the father. He's Henry. I'm Donald. (laughs) You know, sometimes we we have to remind ourselves to be calm. Take it easy. You know, everything will be all right. And we could say that truthfully because a loving, all-powerful God is in control. And this is his universe. It's not ours. Everything doesn't revolve around us. It doesn't revolve around our agendas and our timing. We need to value others enough to allow them the time and the space that they need to learn, to fail, to fail, yes, and to mature. We don't need to be in control anymore. It's a wonderful thing. 
not to have to be in control of everyone and everything. That leads to the next virtue that Paul talks about here, and that has to do with being, putting up with others in love, bearing with them. Now, he's not writing here about tolerating blatant sin or heresy in the church, but rather he's talking about tolerating those peculiarities that all of us have that tend to rub other people the wrong way. It may be the clothes we wear, the food we like, the music we enjoy, the way we say certain words. You know, you say tomato and I say tomato. These kind of problems often exist when you bring people from different cultures and different ethnic backgrounds together and they merge them into one group like a local church. Let's face it, all of us can be pains in the neck from time to time to other people that we live around. You can ask my wife, Ellen. She will verify that I can be a pain in the neck sometimes. But Paul says we need to learn to put up with those kinds of things, those flukes, those foibles even as they do the same for us. Now, if you've been listening here, you hopefully have become aware of the fact that all of these virtues and characteristics that that Paul has been talking about up to this point lead to his next point, which has to do about unity. He writes, keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace in verse 3. Not only that, he says, make every effort to do so. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why? Why is that so important? Well, because it's the essence of love, is it not? Jesus said we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. And he said those two commandments sum up all of the other commandments of God. And love is nothing more nor less than seeking the well-being of the other. So, how do we love God? How do we promote God's well-being? Doesn't that seem almost absurd? I mean, how can puny little creatures like us do anything to promote God's well-being? It's like a snail promoting my well-being. Well, maybe if I eat it, but I don't know. Escargot, right? I don't know. But generally, what what do we do? You know, how do we we really promote the well-being of God? Well, by loving our neighbor. Jesus said, as you do it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you're doing it for me, right? Unfortunately, due to sin, we tend to assess other people based upon whether or not we believe they will promote our interests. And if we believe that they will promote our interest, it's pretty easy to love them. 
Even the Pharisees did that, said Jesus. But if we assess them to be a threat, in other words, if we think they're somehow going to get in the way of our reaching our own particular goals, it's a whole lot more difficult to love them. What we tend to do instead is either to attack them or withdraw from them. Now, that is not a dynamic that we should see persisting within the context of Christian relationships where we are supposed to be applying the love of God even to people that we don't like. And that's not only in the church, but it's also in our families. And we can do this only, only, when we abandon our natural desire to put ourselves first rather than seeking first the kingdom of God. If Jesus made it possible for us to be united with God, to be united with one another, by dying on a cross for us, then unity among his followers should be something that's very important to all of us. And I'm talking about not only within a local church, but also across denominational barriers. Dallas Willard once made the statement that the church in the community is not one of the churches. The church in the community is not one of the churches. That is, the church in the community, <clears throat> excuse me, is all of those who follow Jesus, regardless of what congregation they may be a part of. It's not church councils and it's not intrafaith dialogue that, that's going to promote unity within the body of Christ. Rather, it's when Christians in all denominations decide to follow and obey the teachings of Jesus. There is, Paul says, just one body one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We are one in Christ, and we are one with one another, whether we like that idea or not. We cannot have Jesus all to ourselves. It can never be just Jesus and me. I don't believe that a person can mature in their faith apart from being a member of a community of believers. Christ could enable that to happen. And he does sometimes when fellowship with other Christians is not possible. 
But when it is possible, Christ shares his grace, his love, and his truth primarily through our interactions with one another. And it has to be interactions that are on a deeper level than a smile and a handshake on Sunday morning and a few brief words spoken over coffee in fellowship hour. We have to be committed to a small group of other Christians where we're able to share the ups and the downs, the ins and the outs, the joys and the sorrows, the successes and failures of our lives. That is how we actually start learning to walk the walk. That's where it happens, in that context. You're not going to be able to do it on your own. I really don't think you can. Many of you know I'm the small church coordinator for Trinity Baptist Church. I believe in our small churches. This is why. Sometimes it gets messy. Sometimes it gets uncomfortable. Some people want to avoid that. But that's the only way you're going to learn to walk. There's a little thing in your bulletin, little yellow slip in there, the connection card, place you can check off if you're interested. Joining one of our small churches, I highly, highly encourage you to do that. So we've been talking about how important unity is, but unity itself is not the goal. Unity in Christ is. We should never sacrifice the central tenets and the core doctrines of the Christian faith in order to achieve some kind of external unity. Nor should we allow people to continue to walk in their self-centered, irresponsible ways just for the sake of unity and just for the sake of maintaining some kind of peace among us. True love is never wishy-washy. It seeks the well-being of others even when they don't think that's what it should be. That's what we call tough love sometimes. Real unity, real community only comes when each one of us truly seeks to follow Jesus. It's only then that we can create fellowship where everyone is valued, not because of what they do, not because of how they look or how much money they have, but because they're valued by God. Where differences are viewed not as threats, but as opportunities to learn and to grow. Where change is actually welcome and expected because growth always involves change. Where burdens are divided and joys are multiplied. A place where we can become all that God intends us to be and where we can help others do the same.
In conclusion, I want to share a brief quote from a book by Robert Neff, who wrote a book entitled Witnesses of the Third Way. And he includes a story there about a visit that he made to a church service one day. And this is what he found. He says, it was one of those mornings when the tenor didn't get out of bed on the right side. Of course, that never happens here. As I listened to his faltering voice, I looked around. People were pulling out hymnals to locate the hymn being sung by the soloist. By the second verse, the congregation had joined the soloist in the hymn. And by the third verse, the tenor was beginning to find the range. And by the fourth verse, it was beautiful. On the fifth verse, the congregation was absolutely silent. And the tenor sang the most beautiful solo of his life. That is life in the body of Christ, enabling one another to sing the tune that Christ has given us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for calling us into your family, into your church, a place where we can be known, a place where we can be encouraged, a place where we can encourage others. Lord, we realize that the Christian life was never meant to be lived as a solo by ourselves, as lone rangers. We know that you want us to be an integral part of the body of Christ, and we can only do that when we get plugged in. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would impress upon the people sitting here this morning the importance of being connected connected to you and connected to others who are part of your body so that each one of us here might learn to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.